Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you will learn how a successful entrepreneur who started businesses multiple times, uh, his first one since uh, when he was 17, would start all over again if he had to do so anonymously and with other conditions attached. So my guest today has been entrepreneur since he's 17, as I mentioned. He's been recommended by 106 people for sales on LinkedIn. So I guess it's quite a big deal. Uh, it's quite a big deal. He's a Y Combinator alumni, podcaster at Startup Chat with Heaton Shah. He's author of the six books on startups and sale. And he's the CEO of Close.io, which is a software tool to help you to close more deals. So I'm very happy to have uh, SteadyFT on board. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Right. So let's get on with the, what I introduced in, uh, in the introduction, right? So this is a question <laughs> I, I ask a few times to a few guests that I know could answer because they have some experience with that. So let's take the scenario of you have all the knowledge that you have right now, obviously, but you have nothing else apart from that and $1,000 to play with. And your challenge is to create a business and make like around 10K in the next six months or so. So you can't really use your network. You have to start from scratch all over again, but you have all the knowledge that you got from all of your past experiences. So how would you go about it starting from obviously step one? Yeah, uh, interesting question. Well, first, I would not consider the thousand bucks to be meaningful. There was actually even a, a an experiment, probably you know already about this, but if not, there, there was a, a class in Stanford, a business class in Stanford that was doing an experiment that was giving people, putting students together in teams, giving them a certain amount of money, I don't know, let's say it's a thousand bucks, giving them a week to make as much profit and revenue out of that as possible. And one of the findings, there were a lot of interesting findings to that experiment, but one of the kind of more profound findings was that the team that realized that the money was a limitation and not really uh, an enabling factor was the, the team that made the most money. So most teams took that money, whatever it was, I don't remember, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 bucks, and they're like, well, what can we buy with this and then sell? What kind of marketing could we buy or ads with that money? And they were very kind of limited by that, by that resource of money versus the team that actually crushed it and won looked at that money and said, it's not, let's not worry about the money. What is anything and everything we could do as a service probably because building a product in a week is going to be tough that can get us the most amount of money. So to me, I would look at the thousand dollars and I would just put them aside and be like, maybe I'll use them, maybe not, but I don't worry about what I can do with that money. It's meaningless. If I have a short period of time, it actually doesn't matter if I have a short or a long period of time. I would, I would start with asking myself, who is the type of customer I want to serve? Right? Who's a customer that I deeply care about, that I want to learn more about, that I would be excited and passionate to solve problems for? Right. So it starts always with a customer. And then once I've identified who's the customer I really want to do something for, let's say I have no ideas. All I would do is I would try to reach out to as many of them as possible in my area probably. And in the early days, just meet with them and either ask very open-ended questions or if I have some kind of a sense of direction, what, you know, I want to help them make more money or save money. I want to help them with some area of a problem that I have expertise in. I would just talk to these people, try to identify more and learn more. And then at some point I would try to come up with a, a services solution to this, something I can do using my brain power and the brain power of other people before I would ever consider building a product. Right. right. So 
I would meet with lots of people. I would ask, learn as much as I can. I would start offering them a service that I charge for and would generate money and hopefully generate more learnings and build more relationships and more a customer base. And eventually, if that leads to a product that's awesome, if it doesn't, it doesn't. But that would be kind of my very high-level playbook for this. So let's deep dive into this playbook. And thanks for for mentioning this research. Uh, I I hadn't heard of it, and I'm going to try to find it so that we can include that in the (laughs) show notes in uh, everyonehatesmarketers.com. So let's go back to the first step. You said, first... It starts with the customer, so I would pick the customers I want to serve, which which makes total sense. So, but how do you go about like picking a group of customers? What criteria do you use, and how do you go about it? It depends. I mean, it's different for everybody. For me, um, you know, I like to have a competitive unfair advantage, and I like to have a good life. So, if you take those two things and you overlap them, oftentimes this leads to I should solve. I should solve problems for people that are as similar to me as possible, right? Ideally, I solve a problem for myself, and then I would ask, you know, are there many people that are similar to me or like me that I could go and serve? And that's the reason why I'm in the business that I am, right? I'm building, I'm serving mostly entrepreneurs, technology people, and salespeople because sales and entrepreneurship has been my thing. Technology startups have been my thing for a long time. So that's kind of who I am. And that's who my friends are. And that's the audience that I kind of know better than any other audience. So ideally, you start with yourself. If you don't, if you have never worked, you're so, you know, 12 years old, you know, still, I would ask myself, well, what do I like, right? And are the other 12 year olds that like the same shit? But let's say for whatever reason, you are the type of person that nobody is like you and you don't want to serve yourself. You don't want to serve people like you. You just want to, you know, I don't know, make as much money as possible. And you ask yourself, you know, who, who is a good customer that has lots of money and is willing to give it to me? Even then, if it's not me, I would ask myself, who is the nearest person to me, right, that I can learn a lot about? So I would ask myself, what is kind of, who are the people in my family, right? What jobs do they have? What expertise do they have? Who are my friends? Who are my neighbors? Who are the people in my close proximity that I could reach out to learn more about? So if I, you know, if everybody in my family and everybody in my close, prox- uh, close proximity, if they're all plumbers, then I would be like, well, maybe I can do something with plumbers. Maybe I should talk to them and see what kind of products do they use, what services do they use, where they spend most money at, and see if I can do something for these types of people versus saying, everybody in my family is a plumber. I know nothing and I don't want to do anything for myself. But, I, you know, I've seen a bunch of movies and I read three blog posts and CTOs probably have a lot of money in Fortune 500 companies. Let me go and build a service or a product. Let me put together a website or a landing page and start spending ad dollars or writing cold emails to a group of people I have no proximity to, no connection to, have no understanding about, no nothing. Even that can work, but playing the lottery can work as well. It would not definitely not be my route. Right. And that's something we've discussed with uh, the author of uh, The Mom Test. I don't know if you heard of this book. Uh, from uh, I've heard of the book. I haven't read it myself, but I've heard about the book. Yeah. So, so the guy behind it is uh, it's called Rob Fitzpatrick. And he, he told something uh, quite similar about the fact that it adds, I don't know where he came, he came up with this number, maybe from his own head, but I remember it. He said, it adds two to three years to your venture to find success if you start with a group of customers you're not familiar with. Okay, that may be a very arbitrary number, but that I think joins right. what you just said right now. So you would start with not only the, the type of the group of people you like to hang out with or that you admire, but also the ones that are the closest to you, right? And it's the intersection of the two, right? 
Yeah, for me, it's the intersection of the two because I want to live a good life. Some people that are very business minded, they go, who gives a shit if I like these people? I could hate these people. But if you have a lot of money and have an easy way to get it out of their pockets into mine, then mm. that's the market I should go after. And that's totally cool. I'm not saying that that's not a good way. There's lots of business people that have made a ton of money serving customers. They don't really like that much. But I, and it's just not for me, right? That's not what I would do because my business is a really big part of my life. My customers are a very big part of my life. So if, if, if I don't like them, that brings down the quality of my life dramatically. And it also, it inherits me to be as creative as possible and as effective as possible. Because if I, if I like my customers, I'm just going to be a lot more passionate about solving their problems versus if I, and I'm not, some people are passionate about money. I, I, some people are talent, their talent is making money. They just like, they just have that in their genes. They just know how to turn everything, you know, turn every penny around and make two pennies out of it. And that's kind of what their love is about and what they're passionate about and what they creative, but that's not me, right? I've made a lot of money in my life, but I need to be passionate about the people I'm solving things for to be really creative and effective. It sounds like though, I find it difficult because I'm, I'm quite the same than you, uh, not in terms of the money I made, but more in terms of the, the fact that I need to hang out and, and I have customers that I feel I'm close to that I'll uh, enjoy. But it sounds difficult for me to comprehend how you can do business in the long term and be successful in the long term, like, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years with a type of customer you fucking hate. I think that most people can't, right? I think more people are like you and me that aren't. But I do think there's a small exception to this rule. I don't envy these people. Those are not the type of people I, I think live a great life. I don't really know. But there is a small group, a very small group in the business world that have success in the definition of money, just pure how much money is on their bank account, not how big their impact is, not how much value they've created in the world, not how happy they are, fulfilled inside, only bank account numbers. There are some people that their talent, their passion is money and making money, and it's nothing else. And, and there have been some people that I think have proven over 10, 20, 30 years that they've keep on making money this way. It's not the type of people that I think most entrepreneurs admire. It's not the type of people that I hear good things about in terms of their personal lives and the, the, the types of humans they are. But But I do think they exist. I just think they're so rare. It's so rare for people to be so obsessed and so passionate about just making money at all costs and that stay and they're that are so uh, smart and shrewd that they're able to do this for a very long time most people that they get hooked on just money and nothing else they might see short-term success but they they disappear it's very few that are actually able to sustain that but i i know some examples but it's not many and it's definitely not people that i admire or that i would like to emulate right and so i think we can consider that if you're listening to this episode right now, you're more the type of studies uh, <laughs> rather than what study described. So anything else before we move on to the next step you, you talked about when it comes to understand, to identify the right type of customers or I have a group of customers you really, truly enjoy working with? No, I think some important pointers here are that when you try to serve people, you cannot be fully selfish, right? It has to be in give and take. And I think many entrepreneurs in the early days, it's a very selfish endeavor in the sense that you want to start a business and you want to make money and you want to be successful. And you want to get recognition and you want to stop working at a job you hate. And it's all about you, right? And that's normal and fair. But once you go out and you start trying to get intimate with your customers and generate customer insights and truly get to a level of understanding to be able to serve them well, this cannot be a purely selfish endeavor anymore. 
And, and I see all the time where young entrepreneurs go and they meet with potential customers. And those conversations are a waste of time because the conversation is so selfish and they, they ask questions, but they don't really want to hear the answers. They already have an idea in their mind and they, all they want to do is just validate themselves as being right. And they so rush to go through the questions to pretend they've done customer development and to pretend they've done all the right things when they weren't really there. Their mind wasn't really fully there, curious, truly caring about the answers that the person has, the life the person lives, the challenges they have. They're just there to, to check off on a list. I've done 10 customer interviews. I'm ready to start my business. Hmm. It's not about the, the customer interview. It's not about how many meetings you've booked. It's not about even asking the question. All of this is meaningless if you don't care. Right? It, it, all of this is meaningless. It's just a charade. And we've all been in conversations like this where somebody's asking us questions and we can sense that our answers are irrelevant to that person. They just want to get to the next question and the next question. And then they just want to get to their pitch, right? Yeah. Or the thing they wanted to tell us all, all the way. And nothing sucks more than that. It's a waste of time. I'm sitting here, I'm trying to give you an honest answer. And I can tell you're not listening, right? You're not paying attention. So if you, if you do this, if you pick a customer that you care about, if you go to meet with as many as possible to learn as much as possible, you need to give a shit. You need to care. You need to truly want to listen and learn before you want to talk and teach, right? Before you jump into your pitch about your vision and what you want to do, you need to really care about listening to them. And, and that is the, it's not complicated, but that's the, the thing everybody trips over um, that I see that does this wrong. So I wanted to highlight it. Yeah, thanks for ranting about it. I completely agree. <laughs> uh, something that I say often is and when you talk to customers, especially at first, it's try to act like a journalist instead of a, a salesperson, right? Yeah, it's more like yeah. be very curious, as you said, ask questions, be genuinely curious and have a conversation, not a fucking, I ask a question, they give me an answer. I don't care about the answer. I move on to the next question. And so I completely get you. So now we are going to move to step two of what you mentioned. Um, let's say we have... As you mentioned plumbers as a as a as a fictional group of customers. Let's just go for that for the sake of it. So let's say we, we know that plumbers is a thing, like we have a family in the business, successful business and all of that. We have access to a lot of plumbers or, or association around it. And then you mentioned a very important point, which is the customer development side, right? Uh, which is like asking questions, discovering what they struggle with and all of that. So how do you go about this step, especially when you get started? Yeah, so uh, sometimes people will have a hypothesis, right? They'll have some kind of an idea or something that made them even in the first place consider wanting to be entrepreneurs and starting something. And sometimes they won't. If you don't, it's actually easier. All you have to do is just say, well, let me learn as much as possible about how a plumber operates, how a plumbing business operates, how they make their money. How do they charge? How quickly do they get that money? What are some of their struggles? And as you try to just understand what the plumbing business is, right? I mean, maybe an approach, a framework that can be useful and practical is to, to talk to these people as if you wanted to start a plumbing business in a month and you're trying to like, you're interning, you're trying to learn as much as possible because you're going to start, you're going to become a plumber too, right? So, it, it, but you, you're, you, you want to start a plumbing business, let me say that, not become a plumber, right? So it's not about the technical skill of, of mm -hmm. the plumbing, but it's about the business of running a plumbing business, right? So how do you get customers? How does a plumber get customers? 
How does a plumber charge for things? How does a plumber get paid and how quickly? How does a plumber employ people? What equipment does a plumber have to have? And what kind of fixed cost versus variable costs are there? How does a plumber compete, right? There's lots of other plumbers. How does this work? Competition, the market, all that. Is there a difference between plumbing businesses that serve uh, end consumers versus serving businesses? Try to learn as much as possible and try to pick out, you know, or maybe even start with a question if you uh, don't know any better of like, you know, if I wanted to start a plumbing business just like you in a year or two, what are some of the surprising things, things that I wouldn't know in the beginning that will surprise me or that might, you know, create problems for me after doing this for a few months? What are kind of the, the big mistakes everybody does that goes into the plumbing business? What are some of the things that suck about running a plumbing business? What do you hate about the business? What's the biggest challenge? What is the most awesome thing about it, right? Just learning more about the business side and trying to identify both, A, trying to understand the context within the plumbing business operates, but also then more concretely trying to understand what are the challenges and the opportunities? What are the things that are really good and really bad? And trying to see why are these things good or bad, right? And and what solutions do plumbers typically tend towards to trying to fix these problems? What has never worked? What has worked sometimes? You know, if you're in technology, you might start looking at, you know, obvious opportunities to say, are there certain things that are just like 30 years outdated in business practice in a plumbing business that many other small businesses have adopted new technology? to improve, to automate, to to save money or to make more money, that there might be a blind spot there still in the plumbing plumbing space. So just trying to learn more about the business in general. So if so, so you have some high-level context and then go very specific and trying to understand challenges, frustrations, problems in that business, as well as the things that are really good. You know, where do they make the most money? What is the easiest thing to do? What are the things they really like? To see both of these sides and ask yourself, is there a way to make the good things even better or to make the things that suck, suck a little less? I like this approach very much because I think it it prevents you from overthinking this customer development method and instead trying to be just curious. And I expect that if you're just being genuinely curious about the business without necessarily asking the questions that you want to ask, which is what is your biggest challenge in a business? They will share that with you, right? Naturally, after a yeah. few minutes of conversation, that's usually yeah. what the conversation starts to lead into, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you use the framework that I used in the early, in the, the very beginning, where you just say you're framing it as if I started a business like yours, what advice would you give me? What are the problems nobody understands that's outside of the business? What are the challenges? Two, three years from now, what are going to be my problems then? People will open up and give you gold, right? They'll give you really, really amazing answers and insights. If you frame the conversation as, hello, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm starting a business in a month. I'm building a software product for you. What software product would you like to buy? That's going to be a useless conversation usually, right? Because now you've framed it so narrowly that this person has, this person knows nothing about, you know, startup software company. And now the person's like, well, I don't know, Facebook for plumbers doesn't make sense. And they've got to just come up, they'll try to please you and give you what they think you want, right? Which is now they're going to be trying to give you software ideas, which they shouldn't be in the business of because if they were great at coming up with software ideas, they would be running a software business, right? So if you frame it like that, because you want to look good, again, it's an ego thing. Well, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm starting a technology company. Why is this useful for this person, right? Or for this conversation? For the, the goal of the conversation for you is just to learn more. So you could say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, 
entering the plumbing business or, or servicing the plumbing industry, I just want to learn as much as possible. You've been in this business for such a long time. Can I just buy you lunch, dinner, drinks, coffee, whatever? And for 20 minutes, just get you advice. Just treat you like an advisor. People love to give advice. And if you don't frame it, they'll give you great advice. If you frame it too narrowly, they'll give you shitty advice. And even worse, if you come to an idea with an idea to them, and all you're trying to do is make them tell you that your idea is great, they're going to give you that, right? Because life is too short now to argue with some young kid that wants to start a thing. I'm going to be like, that's my idea. Is it great? And the person's going to go, yeah, I don't know. I mean, not sure, but sure. And then the entrepreneur, because we, we have confirmation bias, we want to believe we're going to be like, yeah, I had a great customer interview today. I've done so much customer development. All the plumbers tell me my idea is great. Right. And then when you ping the, the founder a little bit deeper, you go, oh, why did they say it's great? What exactly did they say? How much money would they pay you? Would they be your first customer? Did you? They didn't ask any of these t- difficult questions. They just presented the idea with a lot of enthusiasm. The other person, to be nice, said, yeah, that kind of sounds, sounds good. And then they go, well, check. I did customer development. I validated my idea. There's a big market. Let me go and spend a year of my life and lots of money to build this thing. And it's way, way uh, too early. So. These conversations, you need to be curious, but framing them in the right way will empower that person to give you good information versus you strangle them in a situation that's so limited that they're giving you bad information. So people are usually afraid of, of doing exactly what you described, like, oh, I'm going to talk to a stranger. Like they're, they're afraid of rejection. They're afraid of, yeah. of people saying no. So what do you say to that? Like, how do you go about contacting your first people? Even if you've been, let's say you've been a marketer for 20 years, you want to start your first business. Uh, you might be scared of getting in touch with people. So what, what do you say to them? Well, first of all, you know, welcome to the club. No, everybody's afraid of rejection. There's obviously different levels of that fear, but I've still yet to meet a person that doesn't care about rejection at all. So fearing rejection is normal, but you have to get over yourself. And if you can't, congratulations, you just learned a really valuable lesson, which is entrepreneurship isn't for you, right? So if you want to be an entrepreneur, you're going to have to suck it up and do things that are not glamorous and not nice and don't feel good. It's just part of the deal. And if if you learn to do that, you have a chance for success. If you don't, don't go into entrepreneurship. Just find a really great job and work for somebody else. Now, when it comes to more practical, like, okay, I'm willing to overcome my fear, but how do I do it? Um, one simple so I'll say two things. One, I'll give you a simple hack. And then two, I'll tell you, when we started close, we actually started with a services idea. And I did exactly what you described. I reached out to companies without using my name, without using my network. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. But the hack is this. Instead of focusing on success, you need to reprogram your mind and, and see failure as progression. So what do I mean by that? Instead of saying, I need to book five meetings with potential customers. And then every time you email somebody or you ping them on LinkedIn or you cold call somebody and they say no or you they don't respond to you, you feel like, oh, shit, I, I spent another day. I sent this week, five days in a row, I sent 10 emails every day. Nobody has responded. This will never work. And then every day feels worse and worse and worse. And now you're in this terrible, huge emotional place. Instead of doing that, you reverse the game and you go, all right, I want to have five successful meetings. How many people do I think I have to contact to get five people to agree to say yes? Let's say I have no experience. So let's just take the the typical example of 10%, right? Let's just say 
Worst case, I might have to ping 50 people to get five people to meet with me. All right. So then what I would tell you is I would say, well, and maybe what you do is you take a piece of paper, you know, you put 45 little boxes on that piece of paper. And every time you ping somebody, you email somebody, you call somebody and they either say no or they ignore you, you just check off that box and you go, all right, one more rejection on my way to success, right? I know I'm probably going to have to get 45 people to ignore me or say no to get five people to say yes. So now every time somebody says no, I'm checking a box off and I see that I'm progressing and I'm moving towards my ultimate goal, right? Once I get 45 no's, more than likely going to have a few yeses accomplished. That's a nice little hack so that every time somebody says no, it feels it still feels bad, but you also feel like you're progressing versus if you just focus on success, every time somebody says no, you feel like you're being thrown back further and further and further and eventually you feel like this will never work. Does that make sense? That makes total sense and I love it. I think from experience, what happens after a while is, is you get immune to people saying no. It's almost like you don't give a shit anymore. They say, no, that's fine. You move on, right? And at a small scale, I used to do that when I, when I started my consulting business a few years ago, I did that. And at first it was painful. And then after a few days, it wasn't that much. Now I do it for the podcast. I invite guests. And now I really couldn't care less anymore. If someone says no, I just move on. Right. And I think this is kind of the, the system that you need to put in place in your brain, which is it's normal that people say no, they have like, they might be in a bad mood. They might have family situation. They might be too busy. They just might not give a shit. And that's cool. That's fine. But there are, there will be people who do give a shit. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's like building a muscle, right? So, but the thing is, you will never get immune to all no's, right? So what I'm saying is, you know, let's say if I do, if I start a podcast, for instance, right, and I reach out to people, in the beginning, it feels terrible. At some point, I get more and more guests, I get some momentum, and now I've, I've been more experienced. So now I know how to deal with the rejection on that level. But if I try to raise, you know, a million for my startup, and I get a rejection from a VC, that might still be devastating, right? Because I don't get a no from a VC hundreds, uh, right. you know, 10 times a day, right? So that muscle has been, hasn't been built. No matter where you are in life, there should be some kind of an ask that if you did it and somebody said no, it would bother you because it's a big deal for you, right? If if it doesn't, and I'm like the people think I'm a sales thought leader, and I've been rejected like I don't know how many times, but many, way more than the average person for sure. The more successful I become, the harder it is for me to keep my rejection muscle active, right? Because now I can lean back and all kinds of opportunities and customers and invitations for this, that, and the other, all kinds of things come to me. Right, which is beautiful, but it can also lead to uh, atrophy in the sense that a lot of successful people, they just, you know, they 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 work really hard to get to that success, and then they stop pushing themselves outside the comfort zone to keep getting rejected. So you have to keep working that muscle, you know, to keep it alive. But I like your point, which is very true. If you do a certain activity every day, and you get rejected at some point. You just get used to it, you get over it, and it's not a big a, that big of a deal anymore, for sure. So then you wanted to talk about this, um, the way you did this exact same oh, yeah. thing when you started your business. Yeah, yeah, because we really, we honestly started the business the way that you described uh, in some ways, right? So when we started um, this company, it, originally, we've gone through th- three changes, basically. Originally, we started as a completely different business. Then we pivoted into a services company that was helping startups, venture-backed startups that had raised a Series A. We were helping them hire lots of salespeople and scale sales campaigns for them. So that was a services company. And we built the software internally first. We never intended to sell the software. And eventually the software became really good. And we launched the software, the CRM software, Close, as a separate little business. And that grew so fast 
that we shut down the services business and we fully focus on the software. But when we made the first big change from idea A to idea B, and idea B was an outsourced sales team on demand for startups, we did not want the world to know that we're thinking about pivoting and that our original startup idea was struggling. We just had raised some money and we kept getting great press and everybody thought we're killing it and we knew that idea didn't work. Right, we discovered shit. This, this, it worked really well the first few months. It's not working anymore. So when we were considering to pivot or change what we were doing, we had this idea for an outsourced sales team on demand company. We didn't want everybody to know about this. So what did we do? We said, you know what? Instead of wasting a ton of time coming up with a brand logo, putting a website together, announcing to investors we're thinking about changing this, doing customer research and all that, like let's just take two weeks and do some really hardcore exploration and then step back and see if we still want to consider this or not. And what we did was we generated a list of companies that had just raised the Series A that were in B2B and that we didn't know. We didn't want people who knew us to know about this. So we right. picked companies that we had no connections to. And then what I said was, let me just start cold calling these people, telling them about the idea, pitching them. And let, let's let them educate us about this idea. Let me throw out different numbers on how much we would charge. Let me throw out all kinds of, I'll experiment in every conversation. I'll try something new and I'll see what they tell me, right? I'll, I'll ask questions. I'll experiment with this. Let's see what, what happens. And I'm going to use a fake name, right? So instead of being Steli FD, I was Steve Eli, right? Nice. And so for two weeks, we said, let's cold call companies for two weeks. Let's get an education. And then if we can get one company to think or consider about doing this, maybe there's something to it. Because we thought, we're going to tell these companies that we don't have a website, right? Uh, they're talking to Steve Eli that doesn't exist online. We have no references or recommendations. And we want them to pay us thousands of dollars and have them give us the job to talk to their customers and close their deals for them, right? That's a big ask. So we thought there would probably be a lot of resistance to that. And that's what we did. I started cold calling startups Every day for two weeks, pitching them on this idea with no, not talking to people I know, not using my name, not using my network. And within two weeks, we had seven companies that wanted to pay us money. And we thought, oh, shit, if we can get seven companies through just cold calling without having any recognition, hmm. we might be on to something big, right? We might be on to something real. So I, I just wanted to tie into that, that this is the way I started this very company, right? Didn't use my name, didn't use my network. I used my skills. But but I didn't use any of that to to get started. The, the question was uh, on point because you have the experience of doing exactly that, mm -hmm. which is exactly the scenario of the question, which is nice. And so tell me more then about the way you call call those companies. How did you go about like presenting yourself? Did you use the method you described earlier, which is more like of a, a journalist or a curious person rather than someone trying to sell something? How did you go about it? Yeah, it was not quite that because we had an idea. Right. Mm -hmm. So I didn't come into the conversation with like, I don't know what I want to do. I know I want to start a business. This is a group I care about. I didn't start off the conversation with kind of that open minded. I didn't. Right. We had an idea. and We wanted to see if, if this idea was a good one and if companies would want to pay money and, and purchase this. So what I did was very simple. I would call these companies and I just because it's a skill that I was very good at. I was good at cold calling. I'm good at sales. Right. So we use that skill. But my script followed a very simple logic, right? And that logic, the principles behind it can be applied in in-person conversations and in all kinds of other scenarios. You know, I realized that when I call a founder 
Well, my hypothesis was if we find these phone numbers and we call these startups, they might pick up because startups at that time, this is like this is a, a bunch of years ago in Silicon Valley, you know, I, I probably I'm, I'm partially to blame for why a lot of startups have become a lot better at selling and building sales teams. But in 2010 and 11, when I was coming up in the Valley, no startup wanted to build a sales team. No startup wanted to have anything to do with sales. Everybody wanted to just build a product that sells itself. Viral was the big thing. User-generated content was the big thing. How can we launch these apps that just like grow on their own? Marketing was something all right. If we have to do marketing, we have to do marketing. But nobody was nobody was thinking about hiring salespeople. And I, me and my company, we played a big role in changing that culture in Silicon Valley and teaching startups how to hire sales and why it's important, why it's useful. But but back in the day, nobody really wanted to do that. So these startups are small. They're not getting a lot of cold calls. And I thought probably we're going to get people to pick up the phone. If they do, though, they're not used to this. So they're probably going to ask themselves, this is a number I don't recognize. Who the hell is this? What does this person want from me? Why should I believe this person? What do I do next? Right? Those are kind of, and is this a fucking sales call? Right? That's always a question. So I knew that when people pick up, they hear a, a voice they've never heard from a number they've never they've never seen at getting a call that is not on their calendar. They want to know what the fuck is going on here. Who is this? Is this a sales call? How to get off the call? Right. That's kind of the the mindset of the person I'm reaching. So I need to address these things. I need to you know calm this person down. So I would just call these people and say, Hey, my name is Steve Eli. You've never heard of me before. I, I run a startup close by. And what we're doing today, what I'm doing is I'm calling a few companies in the area to see if they might be a good fit for a beta program that we're planning to do. Now, this was my first sentence, right? This first sentence didn't convince anybody of nothing, right? This, the, the only thing this did made somebody go, oh, some founder somewhere close by doing a beta program. The next question is, what the fuck is it? What is the beta program? What is the startup, right? But at this point, I've already established a little bit of rapport, right? I'm speaking calmly and confidently with a smile on my, my face, but I also use words like, you know, I'm a founder, I'm local, I'm calling startups in the area, and I'm trying to figure out a beta program. So I'm using all these language that makes somebody feel like, well, it's probably another founder, right? So like, all right, I'll listen for one more sentence, but what the fuck is this? So my very next sentence would be, what we do in a sentence <laughs> would start with that because that signals to the listener, chill, this is only going to take a sentence, right? Because if I just launch into my pitch, the person's going to go, oh, shit, this is a sales call. Why did I let this person talk? Oh, my God, I'm going to miss my appointment. This is terrible, right? And now they're not listening. They're in their head, right? They're thinking, oh, shit, this person's pitching me. But if I say what we do in a sentence is I'm telling this other person's ears and brain to relax just pay attention for one more sentence before you make a decision what to do here. So I would say what we do in a sentence is we help startups, B2B startups, with a sales team on demand, helping them scale their sales with a sales team on demand. Does that in general sound interesting to you? And at that point, when I asked, you know, I, now I explain to you who I am and why I'm similar to you and I'm close to you in proximity. I explain to you in one sentence what we do. And now I know you're making a decision if this is good, bad, or whatever. So I need to ask to empower you to tell me this, right? So I, I, I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm going to say, does this in general sound interesting to you? And at that point, it didn't honestly matter what they said. When somebody said, yes, I go, ooh, awesome. Tell me more about your sales process. When somebody said, nah, maybe I would say, ooh, interesting. Tell me more about your sales process. When somebody said, no, this is absolutely not interesting to me, I would say, wow, tell me more about your sales process. <laughs> Right. So at that point, I honestly didn't take them that seriously. 
it's not that I never cared. It's just that I knew at this point, it's too early for them to really make an educated decision. They don't know enough. I don't know enough for us to make a decision at this point. But I do know that they want to make a decision at this point, right? That they have a thought in their mind. Yes, no, I don't care. And I need them to say it, to get it out of their system again, because if they say it, they can keep engaging in the conversation. Their mind is open to listen. If I don't let them say it, as I speak, they think it's not interesting, it's not interesting, it's not interesting, it's not interesting. How do I get off this call? How do I get off this call? How do I get off this call? And I can't really get to them. I can't really have a conversation, right? So that was really the beginning of the, you know, and then I had a few questions to tell me about the sales process. You guys raised some money. Do you have salespeople? How do you do this? Uh, how do you acquire customers? Where do you get leads from? What's challenging right now? What are your next goals? Like I would just engage in a conversation. Some people would, you know, very openly engage and, and share. We'll discuss it and we'll find out, nah, this will never work with us or what they do doesn't really work for what we want or they're not really ready or for whatever reason. Some people would give me some information, then push back and go, well, I, you know, I want to hang up and, you know, maybe send me more information. There's ways to deal with all of this. But at the very end, if I had a positive conversation with somebody, and if there was some indication that maybe this could work, right? They have the money, the type of customer they sell to brings enough money in where a sales team, building a sales team could really make sense. The way they generate leads makes sense. And they're currently, you know, don't have a sales team and thinking about hiring some people, but they're not sure about the timeline. Like if a bunch of criteria worked, then I would just do a soft pitch and go, hey, let's run through a few things. Number one, we will only be able to give you one salesperson to begin with, right? <laughs> and that's because we don't have an army of salespeople yet, right? So I'm like, you need to know about this. Only one salesperson. We The beta program starts in four weeks, so you'd have to be ready by then to work with us. And it's going to cost you, and then, you know, at the beginning, I would just pull things out of my ass. It's going to cost <laughs> you whatever, $10,000 a month, $5,000, $100 a day, whatever, right? I tried a few things. Does that in general work for you? Like, do, do you think a month from now, if we do a few calls, if we talk to a few decision makers, you'd be ready to rock and roll with us? Having just one salesperson is okay and this price point is okay. And if that seemed possible, then I would just go into asking them, all right, what will, what will it take for us to get this deal done, right? Who needs to be involved? What are the next steps? Well, maybe I need to talk to my co-founders. Cool. What do we do next? Well, let's jump on another call. Okay. We talk on another call. What? Do you think, what else would we have to prepare and work on before we can start working together? Well, I don't know about X, Y, and Z. And I, I would try to get a sense for the objections, the problems, the roadmap from here to a closed deal. And, and that's it. That was the, the the call, right? And and some people never picked up the phone. Some people hung up in the middle of my sentence, right? In the middle of my hello. Uh, some people screamed at me. They don't want to answer my questions. And some people engaged with me, right? Um, and it was enough people engaging with me and being curious about this and feeling a big enough pain or seeing a big enough opportunity that they wanted to give us money and be like, yeah, shit, let's try this. I'm not sure if this is going to work, but it sounds very cool. And I want to try it with my company. Roughly how many uh, calls did you make uh, to end up with seven? Shit, yeah, I, w I wish I know the real number. I think by approximation, I did about 50 a day. So what is this? 50 times 10, it's 500 calls. Right. So a bit more than like 1.5% conversion from call call to uh to a, a solid lead, that's not too bad, right? That's fantastic, actually. <laughs> like, if you can't start cold calling people, and again, you don't have a website, you don't have a name, you don't have any credentials, nothing I can look up, and you can convince companies to pay you thousands of dollars starting in two, three weeks, and give you a very sensitive part of their business, which is give you their sales, like tell you, you go call customers from our company, represent our brand, our company to these prospects, pitch them, sell them, and close them, and then we onboard them with our technology. 
that's a, a big ask. Uh, if you can get that many companies to agree in that short period of time with that little to work with, that's a pretty strong indicator that you're onto something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I had forgotten the fact that, yes, you, you, you didn't say who you were. You didn't mention anything. So that's a pretty good number yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah. So thanks for giving a mini masterclass on cold calling in the middle of uh, this big <laughs> question that yeah. I asked 40 minutes ago. Uh, but I want to go back to this question because you said a third thing at the start that was super interesting. You said, I wouldn't start a software business. I would start a service business. I would sell my brain power and other people's brain power. I wouldn't sell a tool. So tell yeah. me more about this idea and why you said that. So the reason I like to start services business and then potentially evolve it into a software business has many reasons attached to it. Number one, when you do a services business, you typically can start charging hefty amounts of money much earlier, right? It's very hard to scale a services business, but if you if you told me to launch a software company that within four weeks makes 20,000 with their first client, I would tell you I don't know how to do this. I find this impossible to do, right? right. From like nothing to 20K in like four weeks, impossible. If you told me to do this in services, I'd tell you it's easy, easiest thing ever, right? <laughs> I need one or two consulting or coaching clients Right. And I can charge a lot of money. Right. And maybe, you know, 20K is a, is a number that's too high for some people. Even if it's like a you need to earn like three, four K to be able to pay your, your bills. Right. Being able to generate three or four K in services in kind of services much easier than getting to three or four K in software, because software, no matter how quickly you do it, it's going to take you, I don't know, three months, four months to build an MVP. Right. Let's say three months you launch an MVP. SaaS revenue, you're not going to instantly get thousands and thousands usually. The, the, these kind of very quick businesses, it might take them another three, four, five months to get to 4K in MR, right? A, a monthly subscription revenue. So so to, in total, you might have to spend six to nine months in a software business to get to that point. Uh, in a services business, you could get there in you know three to six weeks. So I think from a cash flow perspective, it's great because you can generate revenue very quickly you can acquire customers much quicker because you don't need the lead up time of building the software. Now, obviously, you have to have some kind of an expertise, something that you can service them with, right? If you know nothing, if you zero skills, then you have a problem. But assuming that you know some things, right, whatever that is, have some skills that are marketable. What, you, what I love about this is it generates a revenue instantly. You can start getting really intimate with a customer base, start building a customer base very quickly, and start learning a lot about those customers and a lot about the problems they have. And if they're willing to pay you to do something manual for them, you'll learn a lot about how much value that manual work creates for them. You'll learn a lot about that opportunity. You will learn a lot about how hard or easy it is to do marketing or to do sales and acquire more of these types of customers. So you're building a customer base, you're building a reputation, you're building skills on how to do marketing and sales for those types of customers. And you're building knowledge. You really try to understand how they operate, how they pay. You understand if you're servicing them, what they're willing to pay money for. And there's a big opportunity that some of the thing that you do manual, you could create software around and then just sell the software, right? And you can make that a, a fairly smooth transition. Um, so that's why I, I really like the idea of starting in the services side of things. And especially I like that idea if you have no idea what product you want to build. Because if you have no idea what you, product you want to build, you can pick a customer and just learn as much as possible about them. Start telling them that you're going to help them for whatever it is, 50 bucks an hour, 100 bucks an hour, 1,000 bucks a month, whatever the hell it is you want to charge. 
and see what they're willing to pay for and not pay for, how easy it is to convince them to become customers, you can start servicing them and then you can wait for the software idea or the product ideas to pop up over time as you learn more and more about them. So I think it's just a very smart way to go about things. Now, with all that being said, there's, again, always exceptions. If you're an amazing developer, you might just be better off building things and launching them in the wild and seeing what sticks because you can launch five MVPs in five weeks because you're just an, an amazing creator of software versus going out there and meeting people and becoming a consultant or a coach. Maybe that's just not your thing. But most people that are probably going to listen to this podcast are not hardcore developers, I would assume. So for people that are not software geniuses, this starting in services and eventually developing a product is a, a much saner route to me to success. And it reminds me of the story behind Basecamp, right? The project management software, right. they started yeah. this way. I think uh, teamwork.com, which is another project management software based in Ireland, did the exact same. They had a digital agency, they, they, they turned that into a software. So, uh, MailChimp, MailChimp. I could give you a hundred examples off the top of my head. There's many companies that started that way. But caveat. Some companies start that way and they're so eager to become a product company or software company that, again, they don't take they don't take the necessary steps in the necessary order. They're like, I'm running an agency, but agency sucks and services business suck and they don't scale. And I want to build a billion dollar business. So we're doing a product and we've talked to a few customers and this is the idea and we're just building it. Right. And, and they are rushing to the like, I just want to run a product company or software company. Those cases don't succeed. Although, again, from the outside, they seem, oh, they started as a services business and then they pivoted a product. Why did they fail when Sally said this is a good model? It's because they didn't do it the right way, right? But, but there's hundreds of amazing companies that started and succeeded exactly the way we laid it out. Absolutely. I like the way you, you approach all of that stuff. I know there's one question that comes back, listeners ask me often is, I don't know exactly what my strengths are. And that question is really saying, you know, I feel like a fraud or I have this imposter syndrome kicking it all the time. And I want someone else to tell me that I'm good at something because I'm not too sure that I am. So how would you recommend someone to, to find out what they should sell about themselves, what they're good at to others and feel confident about it? That's a big question, right? I don't know, dude. I think that, I mean, imposter syndrome, it, 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 of any reasonable human being that's somewhat intelligent should have moments where they're like, I don't fucking know what I'm doing here. And I think people think I know what I'm doing, but I really don't, right? Uh, but then the more successful you become, the more you realize nobody fucking knows what they're doing. Nobody, not a single fucking human, right? All of us, we're all winging it, right? At varying degrees, but we're all just winging it as good as we can. Some people are better than others, but nobody really knows everything or is like an expert. Like we're humans, we're fundamentally flawed. And, and so we, we don't really... And, and again, once you have a little bit of success or you're in some kind of a position, you're always going to your expectation of what a person knows and is capable of in that position is always an unrealistic expectation. You think, oh, a millionaire knows everything about business. And it, no, they don't. Or a CEO or a founder or a VC or any like the, 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 there's these things we glorify these roles or these positions in life. And then when we get to that position, we realize, shit, man, even when you even when you sold your company for two hundred million dollars, you still don't fucking know what you're doing. Your next business doesn't work. Right. And you don't have all the answers. And wow, even when you are now an investor yourself, investors don't know what the fuck they're doing. Right. <laughs> they, they, have, they have some experience. But just because I'm writing checks doesn't mean I am all no, like I'm not. I'm not as smart and capable as I thought these people are. And now that I'm friends with them, I realize these people are amazing, but they're all humans with flaws, right? So I think imposter syndrome is, is a normal thing to go through. But 
being in a position where you say, I don't know what I'm good at. Nobody's ever told me what I'm good at. So how do I find out? I find that to be a, a, a bizarre situation. More often than not, what I encounter are people that are really good at something that they don't value, right? So I'm really good at one thing, but I really want to be really good at something else, right? right. So, so I say, I don't know what I'm good at, right? Because I secretly really want to be like when I first arrived in Silicon Valley 14 years ago, I wanted to be a product visionary, right? Technology visionary. That was kind of my, I saw Steve Jobs and a bunch of other people. I'm like, I have to be like that. So black turtlenecks and product visionary is what I need to be, right? Mm-hmm. But, but it took me a while to realize I'm not a product visionary, right? I'm not a tech visionary. I am amazing in certain things and I'm very average in other things. And I need to learn how to be an amazing founder using my strengths, right? And not try to be somebody else. Most of us, it takes us a lot of time not to be self-aware, I think people struggle a lot more with self-acceptance than with self-awareness. So most of us, we do know our strengths, but we think our strengths are meaningless. Yeah, everybody tells me I'm nice, but nice is worthless. Oh, everybody tells me whatever, you know, I'm a hard worker, but uh, I really want people to tell me I'm a genius and really smart or creative. Nobody tells me I'm creative. Everybody tells me how hard I work, but I really want to be creative. I, I find that that is a big issue. People are not accepting what their true strengths are and then building on them versus um, not having any knowledge. If you truly have no knowledge what your strengths are, I would just tell you to ask people to give you honest feedback, like people you trust that are going to be honest with you. Just go to your friends and say, this is a good exercise for anybody, by the way. I do this every year and every time I'm surprised because I'll send an email to a bunch of friends and I'll go, hey, what is some honest, hard feedback about me? that we've not had a chance, you hadn't had a chance to share with me, but you've thought a number of times, right? What's something about me that really annoys you? What is a, a weakness I have that you think I don't know about, right? Or that I'm hiding from my friends and family or from the world? Like asking some really uncomfortable questions like that will get you to, if you ask the right people, will get those people the permission to tell you. So if you don't know about your strengths, you can just go to some people you trust that are going to be honest, not just nice to you and just go, hey, I've tried to figure out in the last few months what my strengths are. I'm struggling. I don't know what I'm really good at. I'm asking you, what do you have you seen if 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 somebody asks you what I'm good at, what would your answer be, honestly? What are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? And another way to get to this, and this is a tip I learned from Heat and Shah, my podcast co-host at the startup chat, is that another way sometimes to figure this out, instead of just asking yourself, you know, what am I good or bad at? Because good and bad is so subjective. Just ask yourself, what gives me energy? What do I like doing, mm. right? What truly, not what I, what do I think other people like when I'm doing them, but like what are the things that when I do them, they give me energy? What are the things that when I'm doing them, they cost me energy, right? And if you had asked me that question in my early years in the Valley, you know, working on product and technology and software, it was costing me energy. It was taking a lot of effort and energy. I was exhausted after these types of activities. But there were other things that I was doing that was giving me energy, teaching others, sharing my knowledge, storytelling, you know, creating content, writing blog posts. These things made me come alive, made me energized, right? They didn't cost me energy. So um, that might be a little heck to throw out there, but just ask people for feedback if you don't know. Ask yourself if you really don't know, if you're just not willing to accept who you truly are and what your strengths and weaknesses are. And maybe another way to ask that question is to just ask yourself what gives me energy and what costs me energy. Maybe that illuminates illuminates an answer. Now, that's the answer I was expecting, man. Very, very <laughs> insightful. Thanks so much for sharing. Those questions are, are gold. And yeah, this is critical. Ask other people. Uh, so thanks so much for sharing. And thanks also for sharing 
all your step by step with me uh, from one question uh, 50 minutes ago, and I think <laughs> listeners learned a lot from you today. Uh, so, in what are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners to check out? That could be a podcast, a book, uh, a community, whatever it is. Yeah, that's an, so okay. So I'll do two things. I'll do one selfish thing and one selfless thing, right? Yeah, so please. you should go to the startupchat.com if you like some of the things that I shared. My co-host is much smarter, much wiser than I am. So check out the startupchat.com podcast. Maybe you want to subscribe to it if you enjoy podcasts. And then send me an email, steli at close.io, S-T-E-L-I at C-L-O-S-E dot I-O. And just in the subject, just put in bundle motherfucker and I'll send you a link that gets you all my books, everything I've written, all my content, nicely structured for free in one beautiful link, right? So I definitely think that my content is really, really strong in, in some of these areas. So ch check that out. The other advice that I'll give on this as a resource is a little bit unconventional, but I find it, and lots of people have told me that it's been very useful and helpful to them. So here it goes. My advice is instead of giving you one more book to read or one more online website to create an account and, and spend hours and hours with, what I'll tell you is to do something else. Uh, I love books, so my recommendation to people is to revisit an old book, two old books, one you hated and one you loved. I find that most people, um, they're always looking for a new book to read. But one thing that most people don't do enough is reread a book. And one thing I've realized doing this many, many times is that a book is not a static experience. When I read a book, it's partially the words on that page and it's partially who I am at that very moment. And it's a dance between the two that make the experience. So as I'm changing as a human being, the book is changing, right? The things I take mm. away from the book is completely changing. So I found that some books I've read seven times, and even at the seventh time when I thought I knew everything about it, uh, there's pages in there that I'm like, I could swear that these pages were not in this book, you know, two years ago when I read it. I would be like, I would, I would put a lot of money on this, and I'm obviously wrong. Why? Because today, the person I am today is noticing and reading these pages differently than the person I was two, three years ago. So Pick a book you really loved and you haven't read in, let's say, five years and pick it up again or buy it again and read it again and see if it's a completely different experience that gives you another wealth of knowledge and, and, and stimulus. And the same thing for a book you hated. Take a book you tried to read five years ago that lots of people like and that you just didn't like and maybe you stopped in the middle of it. Give it another go today and see if it's a different experience it might be. That's why I'm uh, watching the same episodes of The Office maybe 20 times, 50 times at this stage. <laughs> I'm just hoping to get something new every time. But more seriously, though, that's a great tip as well. I've never heard that, uh, that before. Thanks for being so generous with your answers today. Thanks for your, for your energy as well. I think listeners really, really liked it. So steady once again. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always 
uh, can improve. So you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com. Good or bad, please feel free to send me an email. And the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.